Hi, it's Chris. If you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com, it brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for former U.S. NATO Ambassador Nicholas Burns, why don't American public officials resign more often? You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about becoming a member of Chris Reback's Conversations? Members get exclusive early access to select podcasts like my recent live podcast. You also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Well, that was quite a week. And no doubt in the few hours between my recording this intro and when the podcast drops, another extraordinary week will surely have passed. How to make sense of it? To fashionably employ the double negative? It's so good to see grammar finally get its due on the world stage. I don't think it's unfair to ask, where are we as a nation? For guidance, I turned to former U.S. ambassador and current professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, Nicholas Burns. Without exaggeration, I don't think I could have found anyone better. A full rundown of Burns's bio could be a podcast of its own, so just some highlights. Served or participated under five presidents, U.S. ambassador to NATO, including on 9-11, and to Greece. State Department spokesman, National Security Council, where he held roles covering Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia affairs, and the Soviet Union. On-site service at the American Consulate General in Jerusalem and U.S. embassies in Egypt and Mauritania. And don't get me started on his 15 honorary degrees, Presidential Distinguished Service Award, Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, and many others, all of which I bet Burns would rank below his true claim to fame, lifelong member of Red Sox Nation. Listen to what the ambassador has to say. He's thoughtful, experienced, wise, and balanced. It was a great conversation. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to The Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Nicholas Burns. Ambassador, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's a great pleasure, Chris, to be with you. What's happening? This week was confounding, depressing, scary, dangerous. I could keep going. Please make sense of it. Tell me what's happening. You know, Chris, I, I think this past week has been calamitous for the United States, for our image in the world, for who we think our friends and allies are. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to be unfair to President Trump, but uh, I don't think he's fit for office. I think he's demonstrating that. This trip through Europe told us a lot. He picked a public fight with Angela Merkel, one of the closest friends the United States has. He then picked a second public fight with the British Prime Minister Theresa May, another great friend of the United States, both of them experiencing political crises inside their own countries, and Trump's attacks on them weakened them politically, which a lot of people thought was by design. He called NATO obsolete, and at one point in the NATO summit threatened to leave it. 
He called the European Union a foe of the United States. And then in that extraordinary press conference in Helsinki, he seemed to cave in to all the demands of Vladimir Putin. He couldn't utter a single word of criticism. And this is the guy who's very probably our strongest adversary in the world. The mm. president could not criticize Putin on the cyber offensive that Putin launched against our election, couldn't criticize him on Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea, or the nerve agent attack in the United Kingdom, or this Russian bombing of innocent civilians. It was the weakest performance I've ever seen of an American president at a summit meeting. And, and what disturbs me the most is that the president then took issue with NATO again, and uh, when he criticized Montenegro, little tiny Montenegro, the newest yeah. member of NATO, he called them warlike. Yeah. He then did what no president since, has ever done since NATO was created nearly 70 years ago. He cast into doubt whether the United States would uphold our NATO obligations to defend a small country like Montenegro. So we're in this Orwellian world, where President Trump is depicting our adversaries, Putin, as our friends, and he is, he is being severely judgmental and critical of our closest friends, the NATO allies. I think it's a disturbing time, and we have to have a big national debate about what the president is doing to our international position. Is that debate happening? I mean, I know the, the let's call it, um, constructive criticism um, you know, you're mentioning some of it here. I know that's going on. I've heard that discussion. But but is there a debate, an actual discussion? And, and by the way, it, is there a debate that needs to be had? I mean, what would the debate be? Well, the debate has to, has to focus on the big question about the 21st century Americans have to answer. Are we going to be engaged in the world and as the strongest economy, strongest military power lead in the world? Or are we going to shrink back onto our continent uh, and let the world, you know, leave the world to its own devices. I, I think we know the answer to that, most of us. If you look at the public opinion polls, Americans favor trade, Americans favor NATO, Americans believe that our country should be strong and lead in the world, but the president is rapidly taking us away from all those positions. So I find the debate on Twitter, and I'm, 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 I'm not on Facebook, I am on Twitter, but it's there too. It's in now the Congress, and we just saw this over the last three days, when Putin suggested to the president, and this is a harebrained scheme, yeah. that in return yeah. for Robert Mueller being able to question the 12 Russian military intelligence officials indicted by the grand jury in Washington, Putin wanted the ability to interrogate the former United States ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall, David Kramer, former assistant secretary of state, and 10 other people. Yeah, Bill the Browder. president should have turned that down immediately. He didn't. And for four days, the president left us wondering whether he might agree. And what you saw was part of this debate. The Senate rose up and voted 98 to nothing yesterday to say in no way, shape, or form should the president consider this. And a lot of Republican senators came out on this Russia issue to openly disagree with the president, and I thought that was hopeful. Is there any roadmap that you look at? I mean, as you think about, you, you know, you, you're, you're, you've studied history, you, you are a part of history yourself, you have um, helped direct um, this country and NATO and, and global organizations uh, through 
international affairs and, and forward uh, over the last 20, 30 years. Is there a roadmap, anything that you're looking at to try to not only make sense of what we're going through, but also uh, to try to create a way forward? You know, it, it, it's so uh, – Mark Twain said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it, it rhymes. <laughs> and so where might we find um, – where don't we listen to what happened before the kind of big decisions America had to make late 1930s? It's not exact. There's no Hitler rising up, fortunately. But um, a lot of Americans question whether the United States should help Britain and France on the eve of the Second World War. Why should I, why should I die for Danzig was a question asked in the 1930s. And now Trump has posed the question with the help of Tucker Carlson at Fox News. Why should we die for Montenegro? And of course, the, the re- so I think we might find some lessons from the 1930s. Luckily, we had a president, Franklin Roosevelt, who said the way he defended Lend-Lease to Britain, which was under attack by the isolationists, by the America Firsters of that time. Yeah. He said, when your neighbor's house is on fire, you may want to lend your neighbor your garden hose. There were two messages. It was such a brilliant way of speaking to the American people. There were two messages Roosevelt was imparting. One it's the right thing to do. Your neighbor's house is on fire. The right thing to do is to help. The second message was, if that house burns down and the fire spreads, it might spread to your house. And I think that's essentially the question we've got to ask right now. I mean, Americans know we cannot live alone on our island, our island continent. We have to engage with the world to be prosperous economically and to be secure. If 9-11 taught us anything, it's that even a, a group of young men, 21 of them, can get inside the country and take down the Twin Towers and kill 3,000 people and strike the Pentagon. So you need to go out to meet your foes. You need to be out in the world to keep the peace. And that's what NATO is. I, was, I had the huge honor to be ambassador to NATO. I was there on 9-11. I was there for three and a half years. And, and, and NATO has kept the peace in Europe for 70 years because we've been stronger than any potential adversary. If you give that up or if you depreciate and diminish your commitment, then you, I think, increase the chances of conflict, not decrease it. I just tell you, Chris, uh, very briefly, it was extraordinary to be in Brussels on 9-11. We were watching the events back home. Uh, I tried to reach the Pentagon, the White House, and State Department in the immediate hours after the attack, and I couldn't because each building had been evacuated because they were, well, the Pentagon was hit, and the other two buildings were under threat. And the Europeans, the Canadian ambassador, David Wright, when the Europeans came to me that afternoon, the ambassadors said, we want to invoke Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, which had never been invoked before, Mm -hmm. which is an attack on one of us, is an attack on all of us. And the huge irony of this is that that article had been written in the 1940s to ensure the Americans would come across the pond and the Canadians a third time if Europe was attacked by Stalin. And the irony was that we were attacked and the Europeans came to our aid. And by the next morning, we had invoked Article 5. The Europeans went into Afghanistan with us. They are still with us there, fighting with us uh, 17 years later. Uh, more than 1,100 Europeans have lost their lives fighting with us. Many thousands more wounded. They have paid the price. And when I saw Donald Trump excoriating NATO and blaming them as deadbeats, I thought of 9-11. And I thought of the 1,100 
Europeans who've lost their lives and the commitment they've made. And I think Americans know what made us great. What made us great was our alliances like NATO and our ability to trade and have confidence that we can trade with the rest of the world and that we stand up for democracy. And I fear that President Trump is undoing what made us great in all those areas. Two follow-ups on, on that. One, Article 5, and then one on uh, Afghanistan. Um, yes. Is it understood? It, it, I know the answer. I'll ask you. Um, is Article 5 about defense or offense? It's about defense. So if one of us is attacked by an outside aggressor, it is actually not automatic that we come to the defense. Every country has to agree. We operate by consensus. So on the afternoon of September 11, 2001, I was a little bit worried that maybe Greece, I had just come from Greece, I'd been President Clinton's ambassador there, wouldn't agree, but they all did. So it's not automatic, but it's when you're attacked. If, hypothetically, a NATO ally went out and launched a war against somebody else, which is what President Trump yeah. was talking about so, in his interview with Tucker Carlson. Yeah. So if Montenegro wants to go start World War III, let's just say. It can do it on its own. We don't have to. But there's no obligation for the United States or Germany or France to back them up. No obligation. So President Trump was just entirely miscorrect in drawing that image for Americans. This tiny country, he said they're aggressive people. They might get us into World War III. That is literally not possible okay. because we're a defensive alliance, not an offensive alliance. So let me take the America first argument to maybe a logical extreme. And even if one properly understands Article 5 as a defensive clause, um, it seems I could, you know, you could see an America first argument um, at the extreme. Again, somebody saying um, we don't need Europe's help with American defense. You know, Burns, you're, you're a smart guy. You're a nice guy. You said that, you know, we're, we got to protect our neighbors. They're not really our neighbors. You know, there's this big pond between us. And, and sure, those countries sent troops to Afghanistan and Iraq. It was really, really nice of them. Um, but, you know, we could have handled Afghanistan on our own and we shouldn't have gone into Iraq in the first place. America doesn't need NATO defense help. What's the argument? The argument against it is that um, Americans should not want to fight alone and have our soldiers bear the entire burden on their shoulders, and, we, and our taxpayers should not want to have to pay it alone. In each of the cases that you mentioned, Chris, the Allies have shared the financial cost with us of fighting in Afghanistan, fighting in Kosovo, in Bosnia in the 90s, when we ended two wars there, and they shared um, the but the cost of sending young men and women into battle, which is a grave responsibility, and we haven't had to be alone. And just look look at some 2018 examples. So the Allies are in Afghanistan with us, so that means fewer Americans have to be there and fewer American dollars. The Allies are helping us uh, in the fight against the Islamic State, and they have been for four years. The French are leading in the counterterrorism mission in Mali. They have 3,000 troops fighting Islamic terrorists in Mali with the U.S. in support of France, but France leading. And I think we learned enough from both the Second World War, the Cold War, and now our 21st century world that you don't want to be alone in the world. The worst thing you can do is be alone in the world. NATO guarantees we won't be. When, when I, um, I told you about 9-11, yeah. I felt like I needed a higher authority before I committed the United States to, to the invocation of Article 5 and what that might entail, that we would go to war with each other, with, alongside each other. So I called Condi Rice, the president's national security advisor, at 4 a.m. 
Mm. Washington time on September 12th. They were reeling from the attacks. I told her the Allies wanted to do this. She said, go for it. Mm. And um, I said, I need the president's personal permission. She said, the president had a really rough day. I'm speaking for him. Go for it. And before we signed off, she said to me, it's good to have friends in the world. Mm. I've always remembered that. I don't know any American looking out of the world who thinks we should be alone. I think that's the answer to your question. Yeah, and it, it certainly feels like, uh, and then that's the line, that America first uh, seems to be uh, transitioning into America alone. I, I want to ask yeah. you um, about the, the incredible um, Dan Coates interview yesterday uh, at yeah. the Aspen Security Forum. Before I do, let, let's hold it for one sec, because my son wanted me to ask you, and so I'll just be in, in, in big, big trouble if I don't, and he wanted, on, on the NATO point, um, in, related to Russia, so this will transition, um, I hope, to, to Dan Coates. Um, historically, did NATO expand too quickly after the end of the Cold War? And I know that's a, that's a complex you – know, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but, but did it expand too quickly after the end of the Cold War? Well, I'm highly subjective because I was part of the U.S. team. Uh, when I was in the White House, first of the President Clinton, and then when I was ambassador to NATO – that advocated for the expansion of NATO. Why do we do that? When the Soviet Union fell, and I was working for George H.W. Bush in the White House when the Soviet Union fell, December 25th, 1991, Christmas Day, I'll never forget that day. Uh, we felt like we'd won the Cold War, the people of Eastern Europe had. We hoped that Russia would turn democratic and be stable and be peaceful. By the mid-1990s, by 94, 5, 6, it was very clear to us that Russia was not going to make the transition to a democratic country. It would revert to an authoritarian role. We didn't, none of us would know the guy was named Vladimir Putin at that point. Mm. And so we began to think if Russia turns bad, if Russia goes back to being the acquisitive, aggressive, authoritarian state in Eastern Europe, what's going to happen to the 115, 120 million East Europeans who were freed when the Cold War was ended, the Czechs and the Poles? the Hungarians, the Balts, the Baltic peoples. And we began to think, you know, we need to lock in the games to allow these people to remain democratic and to be protected from Russia. That led to the expansion of NATO in 97 to the Czech Republic, Poland, and Hungary. And then in 2002, when I was NATO ambassador, I helped to negotiate the entry of seven new countries from Eastern Europe, Slovakia and Slovenia, yep. Bulgaria and Romania, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and I'm so I'm happy we did, because if we hadn't done that, there's every reason to believe that the Russians would be across into Estonia and Latvia now, and maybe into some of the other countries. And I think the highest, one of the greatest accomplishments of the American people is that we defended democracy in Eastern Europe. And when Roosevelt couldn't do that at the end of World War II, when we agreed to the division of Europe, and Stalin got Eastern Europe at Yalta. We were able to reverse that in the 1990s and in the first decade of the 21st century. All those countries are free countries now because of us and because of NATO. So, no, I think we were absolutely right to expand NATO. What did you think when you saw Dan Coates learn from Andrea Mitchell, who learned <laughs> from Twitter that America was inviting Putin to come to Washington? Well, I, I know Dan. Uh, he and I, when he was ambassador to Germany, I was ambassador to uh, NATO, and I, I knew him when he was a senator. I, he's a man of great experience, great insight. 
Um, he's a man of principle, and I would say he's a man of honor. And boy, we saw that this week after that ill-fated Helsinki press conference. Yeah, his uh, statement. You know, yeah. Senator Coates issued this public statement saying, we still believe that Russia interfered. And, and I thought that was courageous of him to do that. If people haven't listened to this, haven't served in the government, you rarely see someone stand up and contradict the president of the United States, but that's what Dan did. When I saw the interview with Andrew Mitchell from Aspen, Colorado, and I was struck by the fact that the, the unique feature of the Trump administration, and it's a disturbing one, is that the president seems to be completely disconnected from his own government. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm confident that Mike Pompeo and Jim Mattis and Dan Coats all believe that Russia intervened in our election. And none of them want us to see that's, none of them want to see that swept under the rug. What you saw with Dan Coats is that he didn't know that President Putin was going to be invited to a second meeting this autumn in Washington by President Trump. President Trump doesn't seem to be connected he doesn't appear to be running the U.S. government. He appears to be at odds with his own government, the people that he promoted for these spots. We've never seen anything like this in modern times. Commenting on Trump's two-hour one-on-one meeting with Putin, Coates said, if he'd asked me how that ought to be conducted, I would have suggested a different way. But that's not my role. That's not my job. So it is what it is. That that struck me yeah. a little bit. And, can I, and to your point about not being connected with the government, I... I, I agree with you on on the things that Coates did this week, and and I don't I obviously don't know him the way you did. It was a pretty engaging conversation with Mitchell, but that comment it was. Com- that comment disturbed me because I kind of felt like, well, wait, isn't that exactly your job to 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 speak to the president and give advice on issues of intelligence and national security? Well, what we in, in, traditionally in the U.S. government post World War II, we have separated our national security team into intelligence professionals, and then policy professionals. What do I mean by that? Dan is the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates. His job is to provide intelligence to the president, analysis of the president. But traditionally, the director of the CIA or the director of national intelligence does not provide policy advice. Mr. President, I've just told you what I think Putin's going to do. So now let me tell you what I think you should do. That second question that second imperative is really for the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the National Security Advisor. So that's what Dan meant, that, that intelligence professionals ordinarily do not recommend policy options. They provide analysis. Okay. And then just to close out, um, the optimism-pessimism spectrum that we all, you know, vacillate along. Um, Yes. Where are you? And do we as a country have the two? Yeah, where are you on it? You know, I, I must say I, there are times when I despair when I get up and read the latest tweet from the president. I actually think there are going to be better days ahead. I think that President Trump is an anomaly that any future president from either party or even some party yet, not yet formed will not be like Donald Trump, that that man or woman is going to recognize we need to be engaged in the world and lead in the world. And so, I, you know, we're a great country. We're still the largest economy. We're the most powerful military. We have tremendous diplomatic influence. I think we can recover. He has done enormous damage to us, even in a year and a half. But I think we can recover from Donald Trump. We need to keep a healthy debate going in our free society. and We need to um, disagree when we disagree. 
Um, and I'm, I, I guess on that optimism, pessimism scale, I'm also encouraged by my students. I teach a course at Harvard Great Powers. We look at great power competition in the world. It's a graduate course. And uh, I poll my students at the end of the course, tell me what you're optimistic about. And they come back with, uh, they come back with a lot of optimism. You know, we're optimistic, they say, about his, we're living through the period of greatest poverty alleviation in the world. We're leave, living through a period with tremendous positive inroads being made on global public health, polio nearly eradicated, for instance, HIV incidence is declining. They are, my students are very optimistic about the coming digital age and how um, perhaps through artificial intelligence um, and quantum computing, we can make great leaps ahead in human knowledge, but also in addressing many of the problems of the world like cancer. So I find in my students who are millennials, hope the future and that 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 keeps us all going ambassador burns thank you thank you for your time chris it's a pleasure to be with you thank you thanks very much for having me on that was my conversation with nicholas burns want more from ambassador burns a reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com it has bonus insights from him on the question why don't american public officials resign more often my thanks to ambassador burns for the conversation and you for listening I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.